Father, we need you. From Afghanistan to Haiti to Louisiana, from droughts to flooding, to waves of killing. Everywhere we look, we see pain and suffering. In its wake, so many are looking for man-made solutions. Lord, make your name known and your glory to abound. Draw eyes and hearts to you and only you. We are gathered to proclaim your glory, to worship you. Yet we all bring challenges, troubles, disappointments. I pray for every soul and every household represented here this morning. You know every battle being waged in every heart. I pray that you would move and work in us through your sovereign power, through your grace. Give us comfort and rest in your plans and purposes. Guard us from despair and hopelessness. Do not allow us to become bitter or apathetic. Revive and strengthen our hope in you. Galvanize our faith and trust in your providential hand. May our lives give witness to your greatness and glory. Fill us with your spirit and equip us to live daily for you. Give us the courage to say with Job, Though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Lord, we pray that you would speak into our hearts and lives today. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand all that you wish to impart to us through your word. Do it for the sake of your greatness and your glory. Do it for the sake of our edification, our sanctification, to become more conformed to the image of Christ. We make this prayer today in His name. Amen. In late spring, I began formulating a preaching plan for the late summer and fall. Having spent much time this year in the Psalms, God convicted me that we all needed to hear what He has to say to us through the Psalms, to spend some time there together. So as I assembled the schedule, I had no idea week to week what life would bring, what we would encounter. Two weeks ago, the schedule had me studying Psalm 56. I had no way to anticipate that that week I would also be dealing with the death of my father, walking through sorrow. Yet, I was tethered to Psalm 56. If you doubt God's providence and God's sovereignty, I have some credible evidence to offer you this morning. Psalm 56, like Psalm 34, is connected to David's visit to Gath. 
seeking security, seeking safety among Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines, because King Saul was pursuing him, had issued, decreed a manhunt, if you will, for David for his life. Saul was not a good man, nor a godly man. Yet he was on the throne by God's providence. David recognized this and was submissive to this. Even though he knew he had been anointed to be the next king, he didn't see that as something that he would grab for himself, something to be taken through his own power or strength. And so he's in a difficult place. Stay and flee from Saul or seek safety amid the Philistines, whose champion David himself had killed, Goliath. Talking about being between a rock and a hard place, David was there. I don't know if we can imagine how desperate he was. It comes through in Psalm 34 and it comes through in Psalm 56. He's in a desperate place. He feels this powerful vice squeezing him, draining the strength and life from him, it seems to me. Yet he also knows that God doesn't make any mistakes. God finishes what He starts. And He knew God had anointed Him to be king over His people. In this psalm, He basically talks about two things. He talks about fears. He talks about tears. Our fears and our tears. Two things that all of us face in this life. Challenges that are common to us they're known to us so I want to spend a few moments talking about our fears and our tears let's look in these first seven verses as David unpacks his fears how he's dealing with them how he's coping with them what he's doing about it his fears What does David fear? He fears his enemies. There are people, he says, that are pursuing him. Pursuing him. Seeking to attack him. Man tramples on me, he says. He uses this word trample twice. It's significant. Trample. What does it mean? Well, it means to devour. It means to swallow up. To consume someone. Completely annihilate and destroy them. He has enemies that are seeking to devour him. It speaks of hunting, of pursuing, of persecuting. His enemies, both Jews and Philistines, trample on David. They were consumed with an insatiable rage against David. Both. His own people and those that he would consider enemies were equally hostile toward David. All day long, he says, an attacker oppresses me. Their pursuit is unrelenting. It's constant. You know, you wouldn't take a job 
where you were not entitled to take uh, a break, have a period of rest, a lunch. You wouldn't go 24-7, would you? None of us are wired that way. We, we can't continue to persist that way. And yet David implies that his enemy takes no breaks. It's an endless pursuit. He says, many attack me. He shifts to the plural here. Many, they are on every hand, hunting, seeking to do harm and to destroy. To David, it felt like the entire world was in pursuit of him. He was the wanted poster on everyone's wall. The first thought they had in the morning, the last thought they had in the evening, all because the enemy had instigated this. And they were pursuing him. Now, if you're David, you're a godly man, you have to be thinking, right? God, why? Why? I have a heart after you. I want to be your man, your servant. You've anointed me to be king. I don't understand why it's happening this way. To David... It was overwhelming. In Christ, Scripture tells us that we have an enemy, an enemy that pursues us in an unrelenting fashion. 1 Peter 5.8 says that we have an enemy, Satan, who prowls around, roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may, what? Devour, consume, destroy. You see, he has no power over Christ. The cross and the empty tomb verify and validate this. He has no power over Christ, but he seeks to harm Christ's followers. He seeks to attack, to oppress, to devour those who dare to follow Christ and give their allegiance to him. He's an accuser, the scripture says, a slanderer ever lives to murder. Jesus said He is the Father of lies and a murderer from the very beginning. This is His character. This is who is in hot pursuit. But notice that 1 Peter 5a chapter says that He prowls around like, what? A roaring lion. A roaring lion It's one that's just intimidating. The roar is all that he has to intimidate, to frighten, to scare. This lion has been rendered toothless. He has no power to devour us. It's his illusion. Even though he takes no breaks at what he does, he does not rest at night but continues to whisper in your ear. He does not need to eat, but presses his case continually. David says, when I'm afraid. Hmm. This godly man, this man who had a heart after God, with all of this going on, even knowing that God has ordained that he will be king, yet David is afraid. It may be an illusion, but David feels fear trepidation when I am afraid I put my trust where 
in you. When these fears surround me and they're suffocating me, David said, I look to you. I put my trust in you. I put is in the preterite tense. It means that it is past action ongoing. It has been settled and it goes on. He's speaking to a habit in his life. When David was tending sheep for his father out in the fields alone as a boy, he'd already put his trust in God when he faced violent predators. When David faced Goliath, remember Goliath tried to intimidate him and what did he say? This battle is the Lord's. It's not mine. You're looking at me, calling me a mere boy, a scrawny lad. Yes, that may be true, but you need to understand something, Goliath. This battle is not mine. It is the Lord's. And your spiritual battle day by day is not yours alone. It is God's. It is the Lord's battle. When I'm afraid, he says, I put and keep on putting my trust in you, Lord, even though he's afraid. David was honest with himself and others. He confesses the futile battle with fear. God is his refuge, his port in the storm, a fortress, an impenetrable fortress. No matter how intense the enemy comes and appears, God is always greater. He is always greater. He is sufficient. Only He can help and hope. In God, He says, not outside looking in, but in God. In God. He's not beating on the door asking to be let in, pleading to be let in. He is secure in God. Look with me this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you something. This, this is an underestimated theme in Scripture. You know, in the Old Testament Genesis, when uh, the flood was coming and God instructed Noah to build an ark, He built that ark, and that ark is a picture, it's a type of what our relationship with God is to be like. Noah didn't, he wasn't instructed to hang on to the side of the boat, and as long as he could hang on, he would be secure. He was instructed what? To enter the ark, and the Scripture says that God closed the door behind him. And as the floodwaters came, the judgment came, the ark rose and rested on top of those waters and was preserved by the power of God. This is a picture of our relationship in Him. Verse 11, Ephesians 1. What does he say? In Him. Who? In Christ. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In God, 
whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I am putting my trust. I keep on putting my trust. I shall not be afraid. In God, there's so much to praise. But David, David praises his word, his truth, his promise. David, you're going to be king. I have a plan and a purpose I'm going to use you for. Don't listen to the roar of the enemy. Don't believe what your eyes are telling you. Trust my word. What can flesh do to me, David says. This reminded me of Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. My enemies rabidly pursue me, seeking my death and my destruction. They stir up strife. They lurk and they spy. They resort to all kinds of methods. All kinds of methods. Why? To destroy, to discourage, to defeat. Cause you to give up, to surrender. (coughs) But he says, God will settle these accounts. Their crime, will they escape? Lord, will you let them escape? No. The word, the truth that comes from the Lord is no. I will deal with them. All of us have fears. You have fears. I have fears. We also have tears. We're not comfortable talking about our tears. I've always been fascinated by this eighth verse. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. God has taken note of every challenge, every moment, every struggle, every wrestling match that David has found himself in. He knows that God has taken note of them. God is not somewhere far away, detached and unconcerned with what's going on in David's life. Even though it feels to us this way, sometimes we feel like we're going through difficult challenges all alone. He says, I know you have kept count, carefully counted, recognized all of my tossings. Every challenge. His kindness never fails. His love always endures. Do we believe that today? It's hard to believe it, isn't it? It's easy for us to sit in church in the nice, cool, comfortable place that we are, behind the stained glass windows or the beautiful scenery around us, and to say, yes, I believe that. I believe that. I trust that's true. But when you're engaged in battle, when you're on the battlefield, and there's violence all around, spiritually speaking even, and the enemy is coming and attacking and oppressing, are you still as convinced that His love endures, that His kindness never fails? Look with me in Psalm 86. I want to show you a couple of passages. This is not... 
<clears throat> the only place to look, but it is a place to look. I want to read these verses for us this morning. I want you to listen carefully to what David writes here in this prayer. This, again, is a theme that he must preach to himself and rehearse over and over and over. Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a merciful God. You are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Psalm 59, verse 16 and 17. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength. I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. You have kept count of my tossings, David says, when, when I'm struggling and fearful and unsure and doubting is pressing in, you have been faithful. What a kind God, whose kindness and love is unceasing and proven. David says, put my tears in your bottle. Put my tears in in your bottle. Tear. We don't talk about them very much. It's liquid, water, salty. It's common to your eyes. It helps with vision, clears your vision, keeps your, your eyeballs moist, wet, so that they see well. It washes dust and debris from your eyes. Brings healing where there's irritation. Tears come when we're sad, when we're sorrowful. 
when the heart is hurting. Tears come when we're angry, when we're frustrated, when we feel vulnerable or helpless. Tears come when we're glad, when we're joyful. One of the things that uh, I've realized in recent days is how age has deteriorated my dad's view on life. Looking at pictures, countless numbers of pictures, realizing how much my dad laughed in the past. Not so much maybe in recent years because his body just didn't allow him to feel up to it. But he loved to laugh. I never saw my dad shed many sorrowful tears, maybe on one one occasion or two. But I remember seeing my dad laugh until the tears would run out of the corners of his eyes. Sometimes I could hear my dad laugh and imagine those tears rolling. I was at a carnival one night. My parents were there with some of their friends and someone persuaded my dad and one of his friends to get on a Rockleplane ride. It was a capsule, you know, cage, oval-shaped. It's like a Ferris wheel. What his friend didn't realize is that there was a control inside the thing that you could make it spin as it went around. And so my dad started making it spin. And his friend wasn't liking this ride. And coins were falling out of his pockets, and it was raining from the sky. And my dad was laughing. I could hear him laughing. And I could just see those tears. He would laugh so hard he would lose his breath, and those tears would just roll. Gladness and joy can cause us to shed tears. Two weeks ago on Sunday morning, the doctor's told us that his kidneys were in failure and that there was nothing they could do. My mom sat down beside his bed after he had spent most of the summer in hospitals thinking there was a chance he could get better and have a better quality of life. And she leaned in and she said, the doctors say you're not going to get any better. And in that moment, she said one tear rolled down his cheek. I don't know what that meant. Maybe it was a reality of the separation that's coming, the heartache and grief that it would cause. Maybe it was joyful that the struggle was over. But tears come from the soul's emotional well. And they come up at all sorts of times. And they have meaning. They have Deep, rich meaning. They have value. They're precious. David recognizes that, and he recognizes that God recognizes it. And he says, put my tears in your bottle. Preserve them. Treasure them. Guard them. When I was growing up, my grandmother, grandfather... I was a frequent visitor to their house. I could eat dinner at my house and walk down to their house and eat dinner again. I had to eat things at my house I didn't particularly like, but when I went to my grandmother's house, I always got to eat what I wanted. Amen. That's right. 
But every time I can remember, from as early as I can remember, in the living room of their house, over one of the windows, there was a, there was a shelf that was built into the woodwork. And on top of that shelf was a bottle. It was an ornate bottle. It's black and had some fancy white design on the front and a white top. And I, I remember that bottle. If you ask me one memory of that house, it's always that bottle. I saw it every time. It was always there. Always. After my grandfather died and then later my grandmother died and everyone was scrambling and dividing up what they wanted, the memories they wanted, I said, can I have that bottle? They said, sure. Why do you want this silly bottle? I said, the bottle doesn't have any value. But see, in that bottle, for me, are wrapped up a lot of memories. Good memories, sad memories, tears, laughter, warmth and love. I associate it with being in her house, being in that living room, being with family. It was always there. And for me, all those memories are treasured up in that bottle. I have that bottle on the shelf in my office at home. And I still look at it almost every day at some point in time. And it brings those memories to mind one more time. I think David is saying, Lord, all these things, these heartaches, the sorrows... Even the gladness, the things that I anticipate once this fallen world has been dealt with and restored, all those things, put them in your bottle, treasure them, protect them, keep them safe. I need to be reminded of them. God considers our tears to be valuable. They're indicative of this broken world. They're reminders of the fallenness, of sin's curse and its effect. They remind us of the high cost of sin, the suffering, the pain, the death. And they're reminders of our desire to move beyond the curse and experience God's joy and peace and gladness. David says, put, them, put these tears of distress in your bottle. Now, something else that's interesting here. This word bottle actually means skin bottle. It, it's, it's pointing toward those wine skins. You know, in ancient cultures, they put valuable things in bottles. Perfume, oil, wine. You remember when Jesus was talking about wineskins? He said you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Because the new wine, due to the fermentation, can cause those brittle, hardened wineskins, having lost their elasticity, can cause them to rupture, can cause them to tear, and you lose what's valuable in them. David says, Lord, put my tears in this wineskin. And I, as I studied that, I'm thinking it pointed me forward to the new covenant. That's what Jesus was talking about. 
the new covenant. Christ's gospel, His sacrifice, His shed blood, His resurrection. It's as if David is saying, take all these tears, all the reminders, all the evidence of what I've encountered in the past, the suffering that is this present world, and put it in your wineskin where the blood of Christ makes it new again. Brings healing and restoration. Old heartaches and distresses are no longer in light of the gospel. Remember them all. Treasure them all. He condescended to come and eliminate them all. God is for us. God is for you in Christ. He takes your troubles, your heartaches, the devastating effects of the curse of this world, this fallen world, on our lives seriously. And He delivers our soul from death. I have delivered. God, You have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That's good news. That's good news. And it encourages our heart. There's one more thing I want to leave with you. One more thing coming. In Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Then here's the best part, right? He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Amen. And amen. And amen.